From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The fentanyl epidemic is deadly, and parents warn it goes far beyond the stereotypical drug user. Our children did not have a history of drug abuse. This is called the one pill kill. Today, parents talk about losing their kids to fentanyl and their effort to keep it from happening to others. With fentanyl, it's a whole different thing. We call this a new paradigm because in many instances, fentanyl will kill a first-time user. Plus, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock is in Washington, D.C. to meet with other mayors. We'll ask him about the pandemic, public safety, and fixing the affordable housing crisis. Communities making a commitment, including taxes that are going directly to affordable housing, are some of the best, clearest, quickest models that I've seen. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Parents whose children have died from fentanyl want to make sure other kids and adults think before they take any kind of pill. Tammy Gottsagen lost her 24-year-old son, Braden Burks, a year ago to fentanyl. She says Braden had chronic sleep problems. Maybe this is why Brayton made a decision to buy a pill from someone he trusted, a young man that he knew from his high school days, not a close friend, possibly categorized maybe as a friendly acquaintance. Brayton thought that he was buying a painkiller, and he actually bought two pills. He took one, and we found the other in his belongings, a blue M30, thought to be a prescription oxycodone. That pill contained fentanyl, and he died sometime after midnight on January 11, 2019. Much of the fentanyl that ends up in the U.S. originates in China and flows through Mexico or another country. It's up to 50 times more potent than heroin. Today, overdose deaths are at an all-time high, and much of that is being driven by fentanyl. Tammy Gottsagen doesn't like to describe her son's death as an overdose, though. She calls it a poisoning. Most of these people didn't know they were ingesting fentanyl. They thought they were taking a Xanax or a Percocet or an Oxy. It's in cocaine, heroin, meth, and now even marijuana. Gottsagen spoke at a recent press conference held by Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. Weiser says the root of the problem can be traced back 25 years with the pharmaceutical oxycodone, which hooked millions of Americans. It started in the boardroom pushing out prescription pills. It's now being replaced increasingly by fentanyl. And those deadly pills are marketed to look like they're the old prescription pills, but they're not. In 2020, fentanyl-related overdoses accounted for twice as many overdoses as from the classic prescription pills. And between 2019 and 2020, the amount of fentanyl-related deaths 
Weiser says the state needs new laws that make it easier to prosecute those selling fentanyl. We have Tammy Gottsagen with us now. She lives in Centennial, south of Denver. Also with us, Alden and Susan Globe of Steamboat Springs, who lost their daughter. And Andrea Thomas lives in Grand Junction. She also lost a daughter to fentanyl. Tammy, you call what happened to Braden a poisoning, not an overdose. Can you explain the distinction? So the best way that I can describe it as a poisoning is if, say, you go to a restaurant and you order a soft drink, a Sprite, and somebody puts cyanide in that Sprite and you die. You didn't order the cyanide. You ordered the Sprite. You were poisoned. So if you didn't ask for something and you got something else that resulted in a death, it's a poisoning. Isn't it true, though, that most people who die using drugs don't expect to die? They're looking for a high, but not something lethal. Some are looking for a high. Some are looking for relief. Some are looking to sleep. You know, I can't tell you what their reason for making that decision. Experimentation, they've heard about it. This is happening to 12-year-olds, so of course they don't expect to die. They are experimenting and they make one fatal mistake rather than learning from their mistake. But what you're saying is in the drug that Braden took, he thought he was taking a pill that was something else and there happened to be fentanyl in it. Yes, the pill was marked with an M30. You'll see that all over the media. It was thought to be an oxycodone, which would be a painkiller. We think that he was taking it to help him sleep. And he had absolutely no oxycodone in his system, just fentanyl and norfentanyl. Mm. And Braden took one pill, the one that killed him, and you found a second one he also bought. That's why you know what it looked like. Alden and Susan Globe, you lost your daughter Madeline to fentanyl in August of 2017. She was 21 years old. You used the terminology poisoning as well. Madeline was about to be a senior at the University of Colorado Boulder. What were the circumstances behind her death? We'll never know exactly what happened, but she had returned from her semester abroad and was in Boulder early to look for a job for um, the school year. She was hanging out with some people that we're not really familiar with, and she did suffer from anxiety. She took a pill that she got from another CU student who I guess was a dealer. And that Xanax had fentanyl in it. So it did have Xanax in it, but also fentanyl. Yes. So what they do is fentanyl is really cheap. And then they, they mix, you know, the Xanax and the fentanyl. And then they have this press that they make them look identical to a Xanax or an Oxycodone. And, you know, they don't, the dealers don't care about measuring. And as we know, it doesn't take much fentanyl to kill you. And that's what happened. And 
we don't really know what happened with the other people that she was with, but theirs didn't have fentanyl in it. Right, right. Based on her past behavior, Susan, I understand this was a total shock to you in Alden. A total shock. She was so careful about what she put into her body. And we'll never know what what she was thinking. And it's just heartbreaking. And I, she was so excited about her senior year. And so much ahead of her, it's just hard to comprehend. I understand there was a connection between Brayden, Tammy's son, and Madeline. Susan, they knew each other. Is that right? They did. Um, uh, they were both in, um, she was in a sorority. He was in a fraternity. And uh, Madeline, you know, just thought he was a great friend. Hmm. Tammy, did you and Brayden ever talk about the possibility that pills he thought were something else could be deadly? Yes, definitely. Especially after what happened to Madeline. We had plenty of conversations. It's kind of another subject, what is going on in the colleges and at the um, at the fraternity parties or at any college party. But we had talks about it. And I mean, I specifically, it's painful to remember, but remember him putting his hand on my leg and saying, Mom, I promise you don't have anything to worry about. I promise you. Um, I think it's important to note, too, that for whatever reason, he trusted the young man that sold him the pill. It was somebody that went to high school with him, not somebody that he hung out with, but I would say maybe an acquaintance that uh, for whatever reason he trusted. So maybe that's why he thought I didn't have anything to worry about. Um, I'm not the kind of mother that would have taken that at face value. But the problem is, is that our kids think that they're invincible and they believe it. That's a problem. We'll talk about the folks who sell these drugs in a bit. But Susan, did you and Madeline ever talk about this? Were you aware that there were dangers to using pills that look like something else? No. You know, back in 2017, this wasn't... This wasn't a deal. I knew nothing about Xanax or any of the other pills. I, you know, and the fentanyl. My sister had just been down um, the weekend prior, and my sister's alley is a physician. And we had the conversation about cocaine and about drinking and about date rape. We knew nothing about this. And CU sends out a monthly um, parental tip, you know, like what you should be talking to your student about, whether it's studying, partying, drinking too much. There was nothing ever mentioned about this drug. And, you know, I, I found out later that there had been other deaths and there continued to be deaths from fentanyl at CU. Late last year, the DEA seized drugs and guns in Colorado, including over 100,000 counterfeit pills with fentanyl in them. Investigators arrested nearly two dozen people alleged to be connected to the Sinaloa drug cartel. 
Alden Globe, you're Madeline's father. You've studied up on fentanyl. I know you're not an expert, but what have you learned about these pills and, and why they seem to be everywhere? Thanks, Andrea. Apparently, the growth of fentanyl in the United States is an unintended consequence of our government's attempts to crack down on OxyContin prescriptions back in 2015 and 16. And when that happened and was successful, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of addicts in the United States who immediately, when they couldn't get Oxy, they turned to fentanyl as a, an inexpensive and easily available replacement. Um, the other insidious thing that I think we need to make clear to the listeners is, as you can tell, our children did not have a history of drug abuse. This is called the one pill kill because people who, especially students, especially if they're feeling anxiety, turn to these drugs given to them by a friend, not from a doctor, not from a pharmacist, but at a party or a neighbor who provides a pill or they buy a pill and use Venmo to pay for it, or they order it through social media, however they get it. It's not a real pill. And the kids taking it have no idea that that's what they're getting. And that is the challenge that we're all facing. Andrea Thomas, let's bring you into the conversation here. Tell us about your daughter and what happened to her. My daughter, Ashley, was 32 years old when she was poisoned by fentanyl. She had a medical condition where she was often prescribed a painkiller. She didn't usually take them. They would maybe give her three at a time. And if she did need to take one, she it was common for her to use half a pill because it would make her stomach upset. Uh, she didn't feel good when she took them. So usually she didn't use them all. I received a phone call and it was her father telling me that uh, someone had reached out to him and said Ashley was dead. And she had taken a half of a pill and it killed her. And so I couldn't even imagine this to be true. And I didn't think it was true. Um, what we found out is that half a pill was laced with fentanyl. I'll never know what happened in those moments that she took that pill. It was also an M30, what we refer to as an M30. Mm. Uh, it looks like a prescription medicine. And that half a pill took her life. How aware do you think Ashley was? Um, had she heard before that pills could be laced with fentanyl? No, I don't believe that she did. Uh, we weren't aware. These were open conversations that our family has had about drugs, alcohol, and, and it's never a discussion that came up. We weren't aware of what fentanyl was when my daughter died. And we weren't aware that anyone else in our area had died from fentanyl. I'm speaking with parents who've lost their children to fentanyl. I want to clarify one point Andrea Thomas made. The lethal pill her daughter Ashley Romero took was not one of the ones prescribed by her doctor for her illness. It was a counterfeit pill her daughter got elsewhere. Thomas says fentanyl can be found in drugs like marijuana and cocaine and in a variety of fake pills. We talk about Adderall a lot because Adderall is a drug that is used a lot in the colleges. So when these kids are in college, they're away from home, 
they're trying to focus, a lot of them experiment with Adderall, you know, street Adderall, illicit Adderall is laced with fentanyl. We see it, of course, in marijuana now. And this is a, a drug that's 50 to 100% more potent than morphine or heroin. So it's in heroin, it's in cocaine, it's in methamphetamine. It's almost in all of the drugs that you will find on the street. So it's not like anything we've ever seen before with prescription drug use, where we had a, a legal supply of drugs that were becoming addictive to people. They had a chance often to recover if that's the road that they chose. With fentanyl, it's a whole different thing. We call this a new paradigm. It's a new drug, drug landscape because in many instances, fentanyl will kill a first-time user an unsuspecting person, and there's not a lot of chance to choose recovery when you are in a substance use, misuse situation with fentanyl because it's killing so fast. So if you would look at a chart of substance or illegal drugs that were causing death from like 2015 to 2018, you would see small inclines in, in heroin and methamphetamine and prescription drugs. And then when the synthetic opioids came into the picture, you will see that line for synthetic drugs skyrocket. Hmm. So it's a very clear indication of what's been happening in the last few years. Tammy, in your case, the young man who sold your son the pills has been prosecuted. He's serving time. Alden, tell me about your daughter and what happened to the person who sold her the drugs. The person who sold her the drugs was a next-door neighbor and a fellow student. He was uh, an alcoholic. He was a user of drugs himself. He was selling drugs, I think, mostly among fraternity brothers, people around the hill in Boulder, because he didn't have any friends. This was a way for him to make friends. This is what he admitted to in court. So... Part of the challenge we had and our district attorney in Boulder had was that laws in Colorado did not clearly apply to what had happened. Questions of intent, questions of knowledge of what's in the pills that mitigated against a severe sentence for what is really a homicide. So that, that person, that student, uh, did receive a sentence of uh, 90 days in county jail in Boulder. That process, uh, to get to court and, and have him admit his guilt took almost two years. I do want to credit the Boulder Police Department and the Boulder District Attorney's Office because they did follow the process to the extent that they could under Colorado law. They were very empathetic. They did do a good job. Um, but the end result was the defendant received 90 days in county jail. And Tammy, I understand you prosecuted um, the perpetrator in federal court. Um, federal laws uh, were more conducive to um, finding him guilty and putting him in prison. Is that correct? So I do want to clarify that it wasn't me. It wasn't my family that um, pursued the prosecution. It was the Denver detective and then the United States U.S. Attorney's Office. So he is serving time in federal prison. When I asked why this case wasn't prosecuted locally and it had to go through the 
federal uh, system. It was the current local laws do not accommodate this crime. So the federal process, um, it's more secure that once all of the information is given, that you're going to have an ironclad case, but it's a lot more complicated and it takes a lot longer. You know, Braden's been gone three years and the sentencing just happened in September. So it was about two years and eight months. When I hear the Globes talk about a 90-day sentence, I've always felt, as a parent who has lost a child, that um, I would wish that people would be petrified to sell drugs. So I do um, advocate for swift and sure and accountability, not that I ever thought that I wanted or felt that I wanted someone to pay necessarily for what happened to Braden, but accountability. Braden is already paying. He paid the ultimate price. We'll pay it for the rest of our lives. It's accountability. And Andrea, what about your daughter? Was the person prosecuted? Yes. In my daughter's case, there was a young man that died up Valley in Carbondale. And he died from fentanyl poisoning also. The DEA had come into our area to investigate his case and others. And my daughter died at the time they were pursuing their investigation. So I am fortunate in the way that there was so much attention paid to her case. I speak with mothers all over the United States that have not even received a phone call back from a police department. They have no information, not even, uh, they don't even know how to get police reports. So the DEA comes into my daughter's case and as a result of their investigation, five people were federally indicted specifically for my daughter and several others for the district, the conspiracy case itself. And then there were uh, 12 or 14 state charged people. Andrea, you started a group, Voices for Awareness, to help other parents dealing with these kinds of deaths. And you also want to push for changes in investigations and laws. In terms of state laws, what would you like to see? As the Globes were talking about, a lot of times if this is a state-charged case, there aren't laws to back them as far as the death is concerned. So people will be charged with distribution or conspiracy but based on the amount, you know, that they're found with or that evidence shows, that may not be very long. So we have this law in the state of Colorado that's fairly recent. It is called the four gram law. And what the four gram law says is that any drug, with the exception of the date rape drug, up to four grams is only punishable by a misdemeanor. Well, there are exceptions to that law. So uh, you can still prove distribution from a small amount of drugs that's four grams or under, but it's very difficult at a local or state level. So, you know, as we're talking about this, fentanyl is in almost every drug that's on the street now. So when you look at fentanyl within those four grams, we're not talking about what cocaine was 10 years ago or methamphetamine was 10 years ago. This is a totally different drug. So when you look at a drug as potent as fentanyl, and it could possibly be in all of those other drugs that fall under this law, that's very dangerous. But it's time for our state 
to look at how that foreground law has affected our state in the last year and a half that it's been in place and make quick changes, swift changes, revisit this law to pull fentanyl from it. As parents, I have to think you're balancing an array of emotions. Could you have done more to prevent this? How to draw the line when it comes to giving your children privacy? And Tammy, what is that balancing act like? I mean, I'm at a loss there. I talked to my son about it. I talked to, I still do, every young person that I get the chance to communicate with. I tell them Braden's story and all we can do is talk about it, get the word out as much as possible and find a way to also help get it off the streets. Um, It's flooding our streets. And when you see seizures of, you know, 100,000 pills or whatever, it's really nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you you very much. Tammy Gottsagen is from Centennial. Alden and Susan Globe are from Steamboat Springs. And Andrea Thomas lives in Grand Junction. All lost a child to fentanyl. They want tougher laws to address the rising problem of fentanyl and counterfeit pills. When we come back, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock's in Washington, D.C. to meet with other big city mayors. We'll ask him about his priorities, including affordable housing and public safety. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock is in Washington, D.C. for the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He's meeting with other city leaders to discuss a wide range of ideas from the pandemic to the economy to public safety. Mayor Hancock, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. Glad to be with you. I want to start with affordable housing. The cost to buy a home in Metro Denver and Colorado Springs continues to be at a record high. What are some specific ideas you're hearing from other mayors there about ways to address this? One is obviously you want to make a real clear, convincing uh, commitment to affordable housing, Uh, meaning you want to signal to the market that uh, we're in the business to be a partner. Uh, particularly with with uh, local dollars to build uh, help build affordable housing, uh, and two, you got to have some zoning regulations that help you kind of begin the process of leveling the playing field. So uh, we have some tools, and mayors are talking about this all the time about how we can utilize some of our dollars as well as our zoning tools to help uh, create opportunities around affordable housing. Is there any model out there that you think can make an immediate difference? I think there are models all over the place. I mean, Denver is one of the areas that we can look at for affordable housing models. I mean, using zoning to 
uh, create incentives and opportunities for affordable housing. You know, you want to go higher up in your development. Uh, well, we got to have some some give and take here. You know, you give us more units and you create some opportunities maybe on the floor for uh, uh, disadvantaged businesses. Now we're talking about opportunities to create affordable housing as well as uh, community uh, businesses that bring community benefit and value, um, as well as creating, um, you know, uh, some of the development fees that go about the process of uh, saying to developers, you want to develop, then we have some impact fees and we're going to use those fees to create affordable housing. But communities making a commitment, including taxes that are going directly to the affordable housing, are some of the best, clearest, quickest models that I've seen. Denverites are very aware of encampments around the city where folks experiencing homelessness are living. What are some of the things you're doing to get these people into housing? Yeah, I wish there was one sober idea that we had to, to do it, but there isn't. This is a very complex issue for every person who's experiencing homelessness in our city, whether they're on the street in our shelters, we must have a tailored approach to, to assist them. Um, and the reality is, is that there are a lot of issues that are complicating uh, an already complex issue of homelessness, including uh, substance misuse and, and mental health, where we as a state and really as a society are just simply not equipped to deal with the the uh, the epidemic of uh, meth and, and opiates and fentanyl that's really, quite frankly, devastating elements of our community. Uh, so we got to continue to work on tailoring our approach to every individual, but we got to have guardrails. And not only do we lean in with the housing first project uh, uh, concept and values, but we got to, you know, demonstrate that, you know, we're well, you might set up an encampment. We're not going to allow it to exist in our city. And uh, when we get around to it, we're going to break that encampment up. And our goal is to connect you with services to help you no matter where or what your challenge may be. Is there enough housing stock in the city to provide everyone a real place to live? I don't know if there's any city able to offer housing to every individual who is experiencing homelessness. We work to try to reconnect them with services, connect them with their, reconnect them with their family, reunify people um, as best we can, maybe get them into temporary housing and shelter. And we are spending an exorbitant amount of resources on hotels and motels, um, as well as shelter housing, where we've expanded to 24 seven uh, in terms of operations for shelters. Uh, but then we also are trying to build as quickly as we can transitional housing for people. Um, so I think uh, all those combined, we can get people into places. It just takes time to matriculate through the system to get you where you're more stable. Let's talk about public safety. There were 96 homicides in Denver last year, the most in three decades. That includes a mass shooting at the end of December. Five people died. Two others were injured. What are you learning about some of the reasons behind this increase? Yeah, we, you know, I participate in a very uh, good conversation today with mayors all over the country about this. And there are a couple of things that we look at. One is the proliferation and the increase in sales in guns. I mean, we saw record number of sales with guns during COVID. Um, at the same time, we are seeing that number or that 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 interesting quotient between um, the purchase of a sale, uh, uh, purchase of a gun and the use of a gun uh, being shortened uh, dramatically. Uh, we're also seeing at the same time correlation between uh, the high number of guns being purchased and the theft of guns from homes and from cars. Uh, and so there, there's some correlated data out there that tells us there's some things that we can do 
as communities to guard against the increase of gun violence in our community, uh, including locking up and securing our weapons better, including being mindful of who is buying guns and and the kind of mindset that they're in. So what policies, laws, uh, reviews can retailers use to to kind of better understand who's buying these guns and for what purpose um, and making sure those laws are not skirted, being willing to shut businesses down that seem to play games with the laws, but also holding people accountable. You know, if you use a gun in the commission of a crime, um, you know, partnering with the federal agencies to maybe charge people at the federal level as opposed to at your municipal county levels or state laws, there's a difference there. And, and you can really begin to make an impact by getting folks who don't mean well uh, to the people of your community. How much of this has to do with the pandemic? Well, it's hard to, to, to just, you know, to say well, how much it has to do with the pandemic. We do know, however... <clears throat> You know, during the uh, pandemic, we also had social uh, justice uh, protests that occurred. With those social justice protests came uh, an increase in the number of guns that were being purchased. People were buying guns. Um, And the more guns are in the community, the higher possibility and propensity you have for gun violence. So I think there's a lot of things we need to look at uh, with relation to this increase. How many of these homicides involve young people? We've been hearing a lot about youth violence. A lot. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of adolescents engaging themselves in, in uh, violent crime uh, and using guns as part of it. But we are some things we can also do there, Andrea. Again, people tend to see these beefs occur between young people on social media. You know, just watch it as, as, a, as interested observers as opposed to being adults and leaning in and doing what we can to help uh, squash those type of uh, uh, conflicts. Um, parents may have some sense of what their kids uh maybe doing, or at least not asking questions to get a better sense of where their kids are and what they're doing. Uh, we are seeing, unfortunately, more young people, minors, get their hands on these guns and unfortunately not measuring or balancing the consequences of using those weapons. Housing and public safety are just two of the items on the agenda at the U.S. Conference of Mayors in D.C. You're also talking about COVID-19, infrastructure, cybersecurity, immigration, clean energy, and the economy. That's a lot to fit into a three-day conference. Of those, what's your biggest priority? Obviously, I'm paying attention to COVID um, and what uh, the next steps are as we continue to uh, combat COVID. Um, And the other one is uh, infrastructure. Obviously, we've got a lot of resources being invested by the federal governments in our cities. Uh, We're looking at ways to bring about equity, not only in the application of those those, uh, dollars and making sure they go to the places where as we build back better, we are actually going to the people who were hit hit the hardest by COVID and creating opportunities there, not only in their neighborhoods, but also business and job opportunities. Uh, and two, how we bring about equity, which will be the guiding star uh, of that. So um, along with uh, public safety and housing and homelessness, those are the two other areas that I will be most focused on while I'm here. And of course, I got to add the, the issue around uh, substance misuse and fentanyl is an area that uh, we hope to participate in in some conversations. Denver has a mask mandate through February 3rd in response to the Omicron variant and the rise in cases across the state. What's your current thinking about whether to extend that? We are trending in the right areas, in the right direction, I should say. And so obviously, if we continue to trend in the right direction, um, we're not seeing the impacts on our ability to respond to emergencies and, and have beds for people, then we can we can lift the uh, the mandate. And my hope is that we are able to lift the mandate because that will signal that things are are going well. 
Let's talk about retail and restaurant tax revenue shortfalls. How much is Denver offsetting those with federal relief money to build back from the pandemic and the economic downturn? Well, as you know, we received uh, just over uh, $200 million for uh, our ability to respond and replace those revenues that were lost. Um, and so that's going to be important. But that's those are one-time dollars. So we'll receive half the trunch. Uh, we received half the trunch last year. We'll get the other half a little later on this year. Uh, but we are seeing our sales taxes, our sales tax collection and our activities pick up. Obviously, we're a long way from where we need to be, but we are trending in the right direction. And that's important. I think we'll continue to watch uh, 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 sales of major products such as uh, uh, household appliances and automobiles, but also how our tourism continues to, to uh, improve. You mentioned fentanyl. We just spoke about it at length in our program. Can you elaborate on a plan for that? Well, we're going to be uh, we're going to be at the state legislature this year, um, talking talking about some of the laws that were recently passed by the state and how they're complicating matters on the local level. I think our legislatures legislators, excuse me, uh, need to be aware of some of their actions and how they're complicating issues on a local level, particularly with regards to people who are in possession of fentanyl. Uh, four grams is a lot, particularly when you talk about fentanyl. That's really the size of a, a grain of salt that could level a an elephant. And we've got people using this on a daily basis. So how do we not only step up our enforcement to get to the dealers and even those uh, folks who uh, are, are, are hurting folks on our streets, but also how we move people to more immediate action in terms of getting treatment. So uh, we're, we're taking a, a kind of a full scale look at this, um, but we got to start with our legislature uh, this, this session. Okay, let's move on to the Denver Broncos. Uh, There's a possibility the team will be sold. How would you react if a new owner wants a new stadium, perhaps with a retractable roof to allow for year-round events? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of a possibility of a retractable retractable uh, roof on the Broncos. I I, I, uh, would like to see it happen. Uh, You know, I think the the new owner would have to bring a a pretty – Good proposal. It's a very expensive prospect at this point in time. So unfortunately, it wasn't built when the stadium was built. So I think it will be exponentially expensive at this time. Um, so we'd have to take a look at it and, and, and see what the ask is from the from the public standpoint. At this point in time, it would principally have to be done by uh, private dollars. Uh, but we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I w- I would be very interested in hearing that concept. Mayor Hancock, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock joining us from Washington, D.C., where he's taking part in the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Boulder County lost more than 1,000 homes to quick-moving grass fires fueled by record warm temperatures and drought. And climate scientists warn we could see more fires like this in a hotter world. Some state leaders and fire experts say it's time for Colorado to require that homes be built to help prevent them from burning. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis explains. Cleanup crews are starting to remove what's left of Superior's Sagamore neighborhood. Fire wiped out the entire subdivision, made up of hundreds of homes built in the 1990s, with small lawns and some trees for shade. The nearby grassy open spaces used for recreation and agriculture is where the fire first started. 
Samantha Shelnut never imagined her community could burn. Obviously, wildfires happen, forest areas get burned down every year. But no, to be in such a close community with our houses so close together, I never thought it would burn down. Even as Samantha and her family were rushing to evacuate, smoke and ash filling their car, she didn't think the Marshall Fire would destroy their home. The neighborhood is near a major highway. A close-by Target superstore caught fire in the same shopping center of Samantha and her husband Wayne's barbecue restaurant, called Wayne's Smoke Shack. The business itself did not burn down, but the smoke damage was so significant, uh, we, we might be closed for up to a year at this point. The couple are staying at a hotel as they look for a place to rent. Wayne says his family likely won't rebuild in the same neighborhood. The fire has made him rethink his home's location and how that future home is built. All of our houses are basically just made out of wood and sticks. And unfortunately, they were all so close together and then, you know, they probably just did fall like a little intricate domino set. Colorado does not have statewide regulations on how homes should be built to better survive wildfires. Very few states do. But Boulder County adopted stricter building codes after a fire in 1989 destroyed 50 homes. Jim Webster is with Wildfire Partners, a county program that helps residents follow the regulations. That includes an individual home assessment on site with a wildfire mitigation specialist. There we develop an action plan for the homeowners to work on mitigation measures to help reduce wildfire risk. New homes need to be built with fire-resistant roofing and siding. Vents need a mesh cover so embers can't get through. And three feet of gravel is required around the home's foundation. So why wasn't the Shellnuts home built that way? Boulder County's wildfire regulations only apply to the foothills and the mountains in areas outside of cities and towns. They face the highest risk of wildfire. There obviously is wildfire risk on the plains, but that is not the focus of our regulations and our voluntary programs. The Shellnuts home and many of the neighborhoods that caught fire are in grassy urban areas that aren't required to follow the construction rules. Webster says Boulder County officials might push to expand its wildfire building codes into grassland areas. But many homes are located in the county's cities and towns that would have to adopt their own codes. Webster says strengthening building codes needs public and political support. He says Boulder County's current rules were put into place because people saw a need for them after multiple fires burned homes in forested areas. The Marshall Fire is a reminder that grasslands are dangerous, too. And now people from around the state and you know, around the country as well will be looking at the needs to increase our wildfire mitigation and preparedness efforts in grassland systems as well. The National Fire Protection Association is now advocating that states like Colorado adopt statewide wildfire building codes. Michelle Steinberg is the Wildfire Division Director. She says the association recently decided to push for policy changes because the problem is getting worse. More homes are burning down today than they were 30 years ago. We know that wildfires in their increasing frequency, intensity, etc., the fire service can't do this alone. Volunteer activity can't do this alone. We were missing the government responsibility, the enforcers, the codes and standards. Steinberg says no building code is a guarantee that every home will survive every fire, especially one as destructive as the Marshall Fire. But she says decades of research shows that construction and design rules for homes and communities can slow the spread of urban fires and limit the damage. The decisions that we make today in building and land use planning, those will impact us for 50, 60, 70 years down the road. Some Democratic lawmakers are considering introducing legislation for a statewide wildfire building code. In the past, similar efforts have failed after pushback from homebuilders associations who say those rules should be set by local governments. 
I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Almost 700,000 people in Colorado have college credit, but no degree. Travis Broxton was one of them. He started in college more than 50 years ago, but life and opportunity got in the way. Last month, the 72-year-old earned his diploma. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine introduces us to this new graduate. Travis Broxton took his first college course in 1969. It was at Lincoln University, the nation's first degree-granting historically black college. It was a pre-med class. But that lasted one semester. He switched to major in history, but there were other interests lurking. His roommate was into photography. And he took me in the dark room, taught me how to develop film, and I was hooked. Broxton bought a 35-millimeter camera that he took with him everywhere. Three years as a staff photographer at his college paper transfixed him even more. I got to meet so many people, you know, from Julian Bond to Stevie Wonder to Curtis Mayfield to Nikki Giovanni. It was just amazing what having a camera could do for you. But things happen in life, and Broxton became one of millions of students who start but don't finish college. In the fall of his junior year, he got a letter to join Sears Management Training Program. So I says, whoa, I got a job. I'm good to go. So So he left college just one semester shy of graduating. He loved Sears and moved up the ranks. A new job took him to Denver, and Broxton rode the wave of personal computers and then cell phones. He took the odd photography class at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Eventually, on the weekends, he began shooting distinctive and striking wedding photographs. He became a full-time photographer. His real love was street photography. I took that from my car. That was at Broadway and Colfax. I'm looking at a beautiful, tender shot. Black and white, the man is leaning back, asleep, his head resting on a bus stop bench. A woman is next to him. She has her hand resting on his leg. If I'm driving around, I have my camera in the passenger seat, and if I see something, I'll snap it out the passenger side window. Capturing the happenstance of life is sort of like a poetry to the whole thing when you catch that decisive moment. Broxton also shot photographs for charity that took him to Bedouin villages in the deserts of Israel. He visited the Roma people and took arresting photos of the Kurdish people in Armenia. I I would assume that I'm probably the first person of color they've ever seen in their life. And they look at you and they stare and they come up and just hug you and, you know. But that reinforced one of his core beliefs, the commonality of all people. We sit down to watch one of his final photography projects. Yes, he enrolled in MSU Denver to get that degree. You know, my wife had kept bugging me because I said, I, I don't like not finishing something I've started. So I think after 52 years, it's probably time to finish it. His five-minute final project is a video melange of images he's taken. It's got Sly and the Family Stone's Everyday People as part of the background music. And when I first heard that song back in 1969, It was like, we are all everyday people. That has stuck with me the 52 years since it was released. It has photographs spanning his career, mixed in with historical photographs. The gay pride parade in Denver, street scenes in Paris, Obama's nomination, gun violence. And the last shot you'll see right in this sequence, the big one's my nephew, he got shot. His nephew, who was shot and killed in Newark, New Jersey. Bruxton says he'll never understand violence and hate But the resounding feeling after watching the video is Broxton's profound love of people. He says it was great to be in classrooms with students 50 years younger than him. They never made him feel uncomfortable. Maybe that's part of being in the art world. There's a lot more openness in art. 
And I always mentioned I went to Woodstock, and they all were like, wow, you went to Woodstock? You know? <laughs> right, do you want to copy the show? I mean, my project? As he hands in his last assignment to a Metro professor, Broxton's advice and his wife's for others who have some college credits under their belts. Time's going to pass. So why not? What are you waiting for? Just do it. Go, go back and finish what you started. Learn something. Keep your brain active. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know what opportunities are going to present themselves to you. Just do it. <laughs> Just do it. Last month, Travis Broxton earned his bachelor's degree in art from MSU Denver. Meantime, the college has secured a big grant called Finish What You Started. It's part of a statewide push to help recruit adults to finish up their degrees. I'm Jenny Brundine, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to the everyday people who make it possible. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR News and KRCC. Everyday people.